Hello and welcome to the Practical Leadership Podcast, where I interview great leaders and try to extract their wisdom and their experience for you to learn from and hopefully avoid making their mistakes. If you want to upgrade your leadership skills in 25 minutes, check out practical-leadership.academy. Jerry Griffin, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Pleasure. You, sir, are a published author. I did try to buy a couple of your books, but they're an absolute sod to get hold of them on Amazon. They're out of print. You know? Well, what's what's rarer than a, for a Jerry Griffin first edition is a Jerry Griffin second edition. I like that. I like that. Okay. Accomplished composer, musician, guitarist, entrepreneur with successful exits under your belt, communication specialist, and now luthier. That's a fabulous word, isn't it? Indeed. Well, I, uh, I'm just trying to learn how to make guitars at the moment. Uh, and if I don't lose a finger, then I'll be able to play one as well when it's finished. When in this illustrious career of yours did you ever have the privilege and opportunity to start managing people? Probably in the 90s. I worked in consulting. Uh, then I also managed him. Actually, I had quite a difficult management job at London Business School where I had a team of uh, mostly dysfunctional people. Uh, and I might include myself in that as well, but I was warned in advance that it was a slightly barmy set. I got on very well with them; we had good fun, but it really stretched me as well. Um, but uh, probably, probably in the late nineties, where I, I got involved in that uh, managing people, I was relatively one of the challenges I had there was actually managing people who were a lot older than me as well, uh, which is a bit of a weird one to have to do in practice because we sometimes associate leadership with experience. And as a result, if you're more experienced, you tend to have a leadership position and manage people uh, who are more junior in age to you. Uh, uh, so I had a sort of a mostly having to manage people who were 10 to 15 years older than me. So that was a bit bit, uh, bit of an odd one, but it was interesting and, and you learn. And uh, ultimately, uh, working at London Business School had a very strong positive influence on me because it got me more into the training side of things, got me more into the writing, as you mentioned either. And also uh, just thinking about strategy and thinking about um, what good leadership in today's world, you know, some 20 years later uh, means in practice, because things have changed a little bit, particularly with the digital age, the shift towards um, visualizing things a lot more on, on mobile phones. So there are certain, certain things have changed, but some of this, the things remain the same in the sense that if you're going to be a leader, or take on a leadership role, uh, people expect certain things of you, for example, uh, straightforwardness, uh, wherever possible, a uh, level of integrity, uh, a level of capabilities while they actually can do what you say you do or what they do. Um, I'm a believer that, uh, well, a strength that I always admired was that ultimately the leader could roll up their sleeves and just go and do most of the jobs themselves. And if you get into a position where you are technically unable to understand what's going on, um, to me, that's you're, you're, you. You struggle, or you may struggle a little bit more if you don't understand the um, the the technical detail and the granularity that goes on. Um, at least that's my 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 take on it. I do quite. No, I'm not a coder, um, but I I know enough around technology to 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 avoid scope creep, to understand uh, where technology can be of value where it can be opaque so that you need to try and get through a project to make sure that it delivers what it's supposed to do. That doesn't mean that you need to know coding. So, I mean, especially with the older thing there, 
I mean, in the hierarchy site, hierarchy, deep, strong environment of a business school, having somebody younger coming in, managing somebody older. I mean, we normally throw people coming into uh, jobs for the first time at the least experienced managers. But in your case, it was kind of the other way around. Mm. So you were coming in with less experience, less age, fewer grey hairs at that point anyway, um, at these older types. What, yeah, what did you true. do to make that happen? I mean, there is some there is some schools of thought that think that um, leadership has not a lot to do with experience, actually. Uh, and when you see so much, so many failures of leadership going on, uh, of people who are um, who are uh, uh, advanced in in workplace experience, there may be a correlation between it, but not, maybe not a causation between experience and good leadership. And and the way to manage through is to be just clear as to what you're trying to achieve. Just focus on what the business or organizational goals are. Uh, you know, basically, what activity can help make us or save money uh, if you are in the commercial space, and you use those coordinates to try and align the specific departmental activities against that, and then appoint people's roles in terms of how they can play a role in delivering against those. And if you do that, then a bit like a stick of Brighton Rock, really, the organizational agenda, the tenets, the beliefs, the goals all work the way through each activity. And if if it's not clear the relationship between what you do and what the organization is trying to do, then it's the role of the leader to try and uh, remove that obfuscation or to readjust the role in order to make sure that it's clearer. Years and years ago, uh, the head of Budweiser um, at the time, August Bush III, this is when the, when the family ran the business, uh, he had, a, I remember he had an annual review and uh, had a letter written on the inside to shareholders, the standard sort of rhetoric of, of CEOs, you know, in you know, a white shirt, red tie, kind of very focused glare out at the, at the shareholders. But he said, in everything we do at Anheuser-Busch, and we're the first, um, you know, brewers in the world to have aluminium recycling, uh, biggest brewer in the world, um, and so on, a whole series of, of, of um, achievements. He said, we must never forget, and he wrote it at the bottom of the letter, to sell more beer. Um, <laughs> and I like that because it's the rigor of an organization that, you know, you need to be able to, at the time, I presume, if Augie walked past you to point out a relationship between what activity you were in and how you sell more beer. And if you struggle to answer that question, you know, that uh, you might have been in danger uh, of your of your job, particularly with his reputation. Um, and, and I think it's a good thing as to how how can we sell more beer doing this? And, and, and to me, that's part of the leadership. And then whether your your style, whether you're, you know, very expressive or not, I think that's less material to it, and more that you're there to try and help and guide people towards achieving their activities. And and language, which well, I think we we'll want to talk to, is an absolutely core part of that. But language is also part behavior as well. You say a lot by the way that you behave. You know, if you turn up early for work or you uh, do various things, that itself sends out loads of messages uh, and that either align with the rhetoric you deploy or are misaligned with it and therefore uh, take away some of the credibility and the consistency of, of what you're trying to get across. So aligning people with what the, the overall mission or the, the, the goal of the organization is, there's the lovely, um, I'm sure it's apocryphal, but there's a story of Kennedy going to visit NASA in the early days and he goes to the, the, some guy sweeping the shop floor and he says, uh, what is it you're doing here? And the guy's got a brush in his hand, right? So the guy's got a brush in his hand, sweeping the floor. The president comes up and says, what are you doing here? And the guy says, helping put a man in the moon, Mr. President. That's it. Yeah. I'll do. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you then align that? What, what's, what's, the, what's the purpose of language in the communication piece here? 
or making sure everybody's aligned and going the same well, way. Doing the same I mean, it's it's absolutely core, particularly as uh, to slightly drift from my point that I mentioned earlier about the technical expertise or capability of managers and leaders, uh, because increasingly when you've got services and technology, you know, you may have managers or you may be leading projects that actually under the hood, you're not that sure how it gets done. It just gets done. That's fair enough. But but the 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 way that you set out uh, the game plan, uh, if it's a small organization or the vision and mission, if it's a bigger one, depending on how it gets parceled up, uh, is 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 absolutely core. Cool. So language is and the way you express yourself uh, does a couple of things. First of all, it builds trust between uh, yourself uh, and the team. Um, which without that trust, I don't think you've got much currency to, to to trade with in the first place. It shows that you care as well. And I think one of the things that I think has changed a lot in the last 10 to 15 years, probably with the advent of more and more digital, is that what we ask of our leaders is that they care about what they do. So language is important to try and carry, if you like, the value across through storytelling, through expressions, sometimes through appropriate, you know, references to your personal world, because, you know, we are people rather than just corporate automatons, uh, building trust, and ultimately then being really clear to try and inspire people with a level of energy and, and passion towards what you're trying to achieve. So I think to sum up, I think language is is the the way we trade these days as leaders because it's mostly desk-based and office-based um, discussions that we have. Um, and uh, the language and the way that it aligns with behavior and how it communicates stories, vision, passion is a key to organizations being successful. It doesn't mean all the way that you have to communicate happy, positive messages. You can be tough, you can be rigorous, uh, you can be robust in how you get across what needs to happen. But what people are looking for is that you actually care about various things and, and you maintain levels of trust that sit underneath that. We're talking this in the context of modern times and all that, um, you know, the interwebs and various devices. And do you know what, there's, there's some aspect I would posit that it's not necessarily a modern desire on our part. It's like it's like putting people into the boxes or oh, your gen this, that or the other, your millennial or whatever. It's the description, it's the definition, it's the activity, the action and the behaviours of the individuals who are who you put into these boxes that, that matter more. And you go back to you go back to things like uh, Dale Carnegie, right? 1936, he was writing about show people you care, be effusive in your praise, be consistent. Drucker from 1967, he's all about consistency. He's all about time management, of course, but he's all about the the, the, the messaging and the, the clarity and the humanity of this. So it's not, I don't think it's something particularly new. I think it's perhaps just something that has become more front of mind as we look for the realities that will help us to drive our businesses, whereas Previously, we were looking at this, the long tail, shiny stuff. Well, what's the latest and greatest crazy thing? And then you go back to the core and you really, there's this reflective moment that we take, or people have taken perhaps, Yes. to decide that actually it is the core. It's not human resources. It's resources that are human. That's outside of it. When, when you think about the, the idea of, language and channels here how would you go about doing this so I'm, I'm brand new what's my first aid sticking plaster from jerry on using my language 
in the most appropriate way? Well, I mean, you you could. There's loads of good tools out there. I mean, you know, when I started learning and and uh, trying to manage people, you know, there were fewer and fewer. There were fewer tools around, but. You know, you need to figure out what kind of organization you're in. So if it's a smaller one, of say up to 150 people, um, you've got a certain tribe-like mentality in which, you know, face-to-face network kind of communication works a lot. If you're in a much larger distributed workforce uh, with matrix management, then the channels and the way that you communicate uh, clearly are going to be a little bit different. So I think you need to figure out what kind of organization you're in. And, and uh, Rob Goffey has got a great book uh, called The Character of Corporation, which again organizes people into different cultures. You've got networked, communal, fragmented, and mercenary organizations. Mercenary doesn't mean bad, it just means that it's more focused on business goals than collegiality. So, you know, you fill out a questionnaire and just find out, okay, this is where we are. This is the kind of organization I'm in. And there are certain ways of couching what you say that are more appropriate to that language. You'll discover that yourself anyway pretty quickly. However, if you can do a little bit of advanced warning to yourself, then you know you'll you'll get there faster. So, you know, you would, you know, you would use words like family or one big family in a networked organization, but you won't use that in a mercenary organization. So there's certain ways of, of, uh, of expressing yourself that are going to be more register appropriate based on the organization. So, you know, there's some simple tools there um, that you can use to try and figure out the way that you set it out. Um, and, you know, be, be yourself wherever possible, but you need to be appropriate in that regard, particularly for larger organizations, because just being yourself can end up being a bit like Kevin Keegan when he was crying in the in the in the, in the dressing room at the England um, uh, game at halftime. I think we were Newcastle. We think we're falling apart. You can be yourself, but if you're if you're yourself in an unreal environment, it comes across as kind of amateurish. But but what is also great, and which is uh, you mentioned earlier about reflection. Um, the, the the power of good active listening uh, rather than inactive listening, which is what most do, including myself, by the way, of just you know shutting off for a little while and then waiting to jump back in again. Um, if you listen more credibly, you are ultimately more persuasive as well. So if you want to make a good impression in an organization, find out what sort of hinterland you're entering into. Uh, figure out some of the ways that you're going to tell your story that's appropriate for that register. Uh, actively listen in order to course adjust, but ultimately be uh, aware that that also makes you more persuasive individual as well. Um, and those things are, you know, to me, common sense. They're not always common practice, but they are good ways of beginning to set out what you do. Who would you like to thank young Jerry for doing? Uh, I don't really know. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think just... I think the enthusiasm that I used to bring to the table, I was out for lunch with a colleague that I used to work with back years ago. And he said, you're always a bit of a live wire. Uh, And I wouldn't have described myself as that, but a certain enthusiasm I I brought to the table. And that's something that I'd like to try and, as I get older, try and maintain a level of energy and enthusiasm for that. But, you know, I think as you get older, you need to marshal your energy more a bit like managing your diet and all the rest of it and your fitness level <laughs> things that you took for granted at a young self you just don't take so for granted anymore uh, and there are some compensations but uh yeah so i think i think uh just bringing a, a certain uh sort of energy and and uh, enthusiasm to a project uh, can count for a lot um as long as you know it's channeled properly and it doesn't um 
it doesn't skate across things too much. Are you reading or listening to anything that's interesting you want to share? Um, well, I'm li- I listen to stuff all the time. I'm actually trying to learn Paul Weller's uh, You Do Something To Me on the guitar at the moment, oh, um, which is just such a good song. Uh, so when I, try, I write the odd song and I do then, um, I try and look at when you see successful songs as to what they're doing. Because if you actually look at the, or listen to the, um, to the melody line of that, it's nearly a lot of the time it's just one note he's mm. singing, but it sounds so melodic. Um, so I, I kind of love to try and unpack the secrets of things. And in part, when you try and learn it on the guitar, you're more exposed to the mechanics of the chords and the beat, the timing, the pauses, to actually look at the mechanism of the song. So I do like deconstructing uh, songs like that. So I'm just listening to a bit of Paul Weller. I wouldn't be a massive fan of his, uh, but at the same time, um, that's just as you asked. That's what I'm listening to at the moment. There's a book called, um, I'm just looking up the title of it here, um, uh, called Homo Sapiens that I'm reading, A Brief History of Humankind uh, by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Harari. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Mm-hmm. It's a slightly cynical book, I think, but um, and he does a brisk trot through uh, how how we've uh, how we've progressed as a as a as a species. Um, so it's interesting. There's a couple of nice um, couple of nice quotes. Uh, actually, if I could just pull out one quote, I sent it to a friend, so I'll pull it up. One quote that I thought was actually very interesting. Um, Scholars tend to ask only those questions that they can reasonably expect to answer. I thought that's actually a really nice idea. So that it's almost saying that even in research, we are framing or even limiting our curiosity because we can't ask questions that are unknowable, if you like. And therefore, we stick to our guts. I think that's sort of what it's trying to say. But I thought that was a quote from the book that kind of stood out for me a little bit. I do like that. I mean, the the idea of uh, learning a piece of music as well. I mean, the, be- the best way of learning anything is to teach it. But I think, and particularly when you're you're trying to do, you do deconstruct a piece of music. That's the process you go through when you're trying to teach something. You're deconstructing it and reconstructing it in your head so that you truly understand it in order to be able to teach it. You're taking on a new piece of music. You're doing that. You're deconstructing it to its component parts so that you can then reconstruct it in whatever device or machine you put that your handmade luthier guitar that you happen to be uh, wanted to play on at that moment. Yeah, it's true. I mean, when you strip things down and to look at the components, uh, most of the time you realize uh, that things are trickier than they appear. Mm. Uh, so songs that appear to be quite simple, you'll find, well, I find from time to time, I think they're they're actually harder to pull off than you think um, because of the way, usually maybe the timing signature is just not so self-evident, but I realize that's actually quite a tricky song to do. So I quite like discovering that. So Part of what I bring to the table now when I'm looking at things is never underestimate the task ahead of you, whether it's putting up a shelf or <laughs> learning. So just don't underestimate it, and therefore you won't get annoyed. And I think probably one of the things I have learned as I got older is to just not just run in like some kind of Labrador puppy and go, yeah, I can do that. And it's really easy. Going, no, no, I'm thinking just stand back, just re- look at what's needed to deliver that. Uh, doesn't and in fact I've grown in confidence in delivering things. In part, that's by being more realistic in my expectations as to the requirements to deliver that as well. So maybe that's part of the the upside of getting older is that an experience 
does teach you not to overestimate your capability or underestimate the requirements behind a task. But also you should still maintain a level of stretch and what we'd say, throw your hat over the wall so you have to follow it. Of course, do still do that. But, but, but to also realize that at a technical level, when you see all around you things that are happening, somebody at a sandwich shop making great sandwiches or making great coffee or somebody, you know, there's technique behind it. That's learned technique. And if they make it look easy, a lot of times because they're very good at doing that. Uh, and I quite enjoy the craft behind, you know, all of the things that are going on. You know, I see over your shoulder, dark, dark, dark uh, side of the, of the moon by Pink Floyd. There's a money song there that starts in seven, eight time and then shifts to four, four time during the solo. They shifted during the solo because they didn't think that Dave Gilmore could play the guitar in seven, eight time. It was built in seven, eight time because it started with a trumpet, a saxophone solo and they discovered the guy was doing the saxophone solo in seven, eight time, but it gives it a really cracking opening beam mm. as you you'll notice the timing signature shift in the solo and the song shoots forward when it shifts that timing signature but playing a song and doing something seven eight times is incredibly hard to do and um, so as i say it's a great song and it's very interesting but part of its drive is the craft that sits underneath the construction of that song you're trying to de-layer something and finding the layers themselves just come crashing down in your head like a badly built shelf exactly i've done enough bad bad <laughs> i can tell you <laughs> <laughs> Above all, if I can if I can leave uh, your listeners with one thing, never underestimate how it is to put up a shelf. <laughs> Above all. <laughs> Excellent. And even Excellent. if it's up perfectly, it may look out because the goddamn ceiling is <laughs> That's the worst bit. You're in an old house, you put the damn things up, and then you realize my shelf is perfect. There's the bloody walls or the swings. 100%. Oh, then what do you align it to? Jerry Griffin, thank you very much indeed for Pleasure. joining me. All right, fella. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining me today. Your homework, subscribe and share this with a friend or colleague. Please leave your five-star review and any comments you have because that really helps me to improve every day and it helps people to discover me online. If you want to upgrade your leadership skills in 25 minutes, you should check out practical-leadership.academy.